Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m., and you can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it's my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. In Psalm 69, verse 9, the psalmist wrote, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Now, those words may sound familiar to you because they appear in the New Testament uh, in a passage that's fairly familiar to a lot of Christians. Over in John chapter 2, verse 17, after Jesus had cleansed the temple of all the people who had made it a place of business, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, that is, remembered the psalmist's words and applied them to Jesus. They remembered, zeal for your house has consumed me. They remembered that that had been written and they applied that to Jesus. But zeal for the Father's house, zeal for God's will and his ways, is not reserved for Jesus only. Righteous zeal is a thing that is commended by God when he sees it in his people still today. And to show you this, I want to look at a text in the book of Numbers, starting in chapter 25, as I preach a message simply called, The Zealousness of Phineas. Phineas is the son of Eleazar and the grandson of Aaron the priest, and he's an interesting example for us when it comes to righteous seal. We have a lot of good examples uh, throughout the Bible, uh, good examples in a lot of different areas of our, our lives when we're living for God, examples of how we should do that. As we read through God's Word, we see a whole bunch of godly people who stand as examples that we should learn from. Romans 15.4 uh, tells us, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Well, our text this morning was written in earlier times, and Phineas stands as an example for us. And this story was shared with us for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. All right, so let's go ahead and read through the text this morning. Follow along with me if you've got your Bible handy. And as we read, really sit up, uh, pay attention, uh, take note of the details of the story. Uh, Listen for what was really going on at the time, who was involved, and especially what the Lord had to say throughout this event. Numbers chapter 25, we'll read verses 1 through 13 this morning. Numbers 25, starting in verse 1. The Bible says this, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then, behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. 
in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now, to understand the sin of the people in this passage, we need to remember that as God's chosen people, God clearly commanded them to keep themselves separate from other sinful, idolatrous nations. He didn't want them intermingling. He didn't want them intermarrying with idolatrous, wicked nations. He didn't want them worshiping their false gods. He didn't want them participating in their traditions. God wanted to keep his people separate and pure, removed from sin. Well, in spite of that command, Israel had become intermingled with foreign nations, even to the point that the Bible says that they were playing the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They were bowing down to the gods of these people. They were involved in this horrible idolatry. They were doing some some terribly disgusting and immoral things that we won't go into detail on. All of this was standard practice for these idolatrous people. All of this was direct violation of God's commands. All of this was a, a terrible rebellion against God's will. So Israel, we might say, was wandering in every sense of the word. They were still physically wandering at this time. They hadn't entered the promised land yet. But in the scripture we read, we see that they were also wandering spiritually. And the Lord was angry about it. And so there was a plague going on among the people of Israel, a plague that took the lives of 24,000 people before it was all said and done. And Phineas kind of becomes the hero of the story because... In his zeal for the Lord, he killed an ungodly man and woman committing adultery publicly for all the world to see at the tent of meeting while people were mourning. The absolute gross disobedience that was going on at this time angered the Lord to the point that he had actually commanded Moses to have the leaders executed. Phineas apparently knew the magnitude of the Lord's anger and understood why the Lord was so angry. And so for Phineas to know the sin that this particular man and woman were committing in plain view of Moses and all the congregation while they were mourning because of this awful plague that the sin of the people of Israel had brought on them, Phineas just couldn't take it. And he knew the Lord couldn't either. The blatant disrespect, the degenerate mind and spirit that was required for this man to commit such an act, especially given the circumstances. Wow. And so Phineas didn't wait around. He, he got up, he grabbed a spear, and he took care of the problem. And God commended Phineas for it. In fact, this was such a righteous act. This event is actually commemorated in Psalm 106 in verses 28 through 31. 
In verse 31 of that psalm, it says, and it was reckoned to him, that's talking about Phineas. it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. This was considered a righteous deed in the mind of God. And then here in Numbers chapter 25 in verse 13, we see that this righteous act secured the succession of the priesthood to his house for future generations. God was pleased. God said Phineas had made atonement for the sons of Israel and turned away his wrath. When we look at Phineas here in Numbers 25, here's a man who is serious about God. Here's a man who is serious about sin, about righteousness, and about keeping the camp in the house of God pure. He saw God as holy and righteous, as he should. He was jealous for his God, and he went to extreme lengths in making sure this man's sin was dealt with in an according manner. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, great story, great lesson, great man of courage, righteousness, and zeal. How does this apply to us today, though? Well, I hope some of the applications from this event are pretty quickly apparent, actually. For instance, God expects his people to obey him. As I mentioned earlier, God made a clear and direct command not to intermarry with other nations, not to give their sons and daughters to marry with these other nations that worshiped idols and were wicked and sinful. And God had reasons for those commands. He knew that it would damage their relationship with him. He knew they would turn away from him. He knew that that would result in pain for them. Well, listen, God still expects his people to obey him. It's a simple lesson, but we could all stand to hear it more. God expects his people to obey him. Sometimes we act like we don't know this, though. Sadly, we do know it. We just don't always act like it. Just like the Israelites here knew God expected obedience, but they still disobey. We still do the very same thing. Now, please don't misunderstand me here when it comes to this, uh, the, the importance, uh, the, the critical nature of obedience here. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. I know that. I've read Ephesians chapter 2. We can't earn our salvation by our works. We'll never, um, God will never owe it to us. But the Lord expects obedience from his people. You cannot sidestep that. You cannot downplay the importance of that. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you don't find yourself with a strong desire to obey him, it's probably because you don't love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus taught that those who were going to heaven weren't the ones who simply called him, quote unquote, Lord. The ones going to heaven are going to be those who hear his words and act on them, those who obey his word. Jesus is clear about that. In Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, that concept just doesn't compute with Jesus. We can't just call him Lord. God expects his people to obey him. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And having been made perfect, he, that's talking about Christ, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. See, he's the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. The Lord requires obedience. Well, this is such a practical lesson. Think about this. When Christ commands us to do something to be saved, can I fail to do that and still be saved? For example, Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Let's say I'm not going to believe in Jesus, but I want to go to heaven. Is that going to work? Of course not. 
When Jesus says in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Can I keep living in sin and not repent and think I'm going to go to heaven? Not a chance. What about when the Bible clearly says to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, to be clothed with Christ, to put on his righteousness, to be buried with him and raised up to newness of life with him, to be saved uh, through our baptism as an appeal to God for a clear conscience? What about that? Can I refuse to do that? Can I refuse to be baptized and still expect to be right with God? If I'm looking at scripture and I'm honest, The answer is obviously no. I can't expect to sidestep baptism and still be saved. God expects his people to obey him. We aren't going to be perfect, but he requires faithfulness. And it's unfaithful to refuse to obey. And it's unfaithful to give anything but your absolute best effort toward obedience. Now, a second very practical lesson that this story about Phineas brings to mind is this. God has always wanted his people to be separated from sin. God has always wanted his people to be separated from sin. God wants us to draw a line. He knows how weak we are. He knows how susceptible we are to temptation. And so very wisely, he has instructed us to avoid temptation. Now, does that mean that we're not going to interact with the world at all? No, of course, that, that can't be true. We have to interact with the world to serve them and to reach them with the gospel. But the idea here is this. I need to be very careful to remain separated from sin. I will interact with the world, but I don't want to take on their values, their morals, their gods, and their way of life. I want to be very careful to avoid any sort of temptation to look like the world, smell like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, think like the world. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, this passage of scripture says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Folks, that should be the mentality of a Christian. I want to come out of the world. I want to be separated to God. I don't have, or at least shouldn't have, anything in common with the unbelieving world except my need for Jesus Christ. Our morals are not their morals. Our principles are not their principles. Our God is not their God. Now listen, if separation from the world rubs you the wrong way, if if that bothers you or you're still holding back a little bit and just not quite ready to, to jump out of the world and be separated to God, listen to a couple of passages here. First of all, listen to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Scripture says here, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. 
James 4, 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do any of you listening this morning think that there is any scenario where being an enemy of God could possibly be okay, could possibly be a good thing, could possibly turn out all right? No, of course not. That never ends well. So for your own good, to avoid temptation, to obey the Lord, to be able to be saved, learn from the Israelites' mistakes. Don't be of this world. Separate yourself from sin and as much temptation as possible. Now, another very practical lesson that we learn from Phineas's example is this. As God's children, we need to zealously and courageously stand up for what's right. As God's children, we need to zealously and courageously stand up for what's right. A lot of people will stand up for some things, right? They'll, they'll stand up for their favorite sports team. Uh, they'll certainly, in many cases these days, stand up for their politics or even something as benign as a hobby. What about when it comes to God's truth? What about when it comes to souls? What about when it comes to things that are eternally important? Guys, Christians have a moral obligation to stand up for what's right. We have a moral obligation to recognize sin when we see it and to respond appropriately. Not the way we want to respond, not the way that's the most comfortable or the most pleasing to everyone, but to respond appropriately, scripturally. I want you to notice that in the passage we read in Numbers 25, the problem, uh, the sin that was going on, it was recognized within the chosen people of God, right? Not the outside world, but within the camp of Israel, within the camp of God's people. There's something here for us to learn, for sure. We need to proclaim the good news to the whole world. We need to serve the whole world, but we need to work zealously to be sure that we are keeping the church pure. Like Phineas, who, who couldn't stand seeing God's people sinning so brazenly. Today, we need to zealously and courageously protect God's chosen people, the church, and we need to work to keep it pure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verses 9 through 11, Paul said this. He said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with this one. Now, Paul's not talking about the unbelieving world, right? That's what he says. He's not talking about outsiders. He's talking about insiders. He's talking about zealously keeping the church pure. Listen, if a so-called brother won't clean up his act, if he won't listen to you when you come to him with gentleness and respect to try to help correct him, if he won't change his sinful ways, Paul says the right thing to do in that case is to refuse to associate with him. Sometimes this is how we have to keep the church pure. Now, just to be clear, God has not commanded us to put a javelin through anyone. Don't misunderstand the story here. Uh, but we can and should, in a spirit of love for Christ and his church, zealously stand up for what is right. That's how we protect the integrity and the purity of the church. And now for the final lesson from Phineas's story here. Zeal and doing the right thing is to be commended, not looked down on. All right, zeal 
And doing the right thing is to be commended, not looked down on. I wonder what some of the people in Phineas's day thought about this. You, you know, has that thought crept into your minds yet as we've been going through this? Uh, we, we know what God thought about this, but what did the people think about Phineas's actions? I mean, can you imagine the cries that must have gone out when this happened? Can you imagine the looks on people's faces? Their, their jaws dropped. They're, some of them probably couldn't speak. Some of them probably couldn't shut up. There were probably some who had also joined themselves with Baal of Peor who thought that what Phineas had done was wrong, terribly wrong. But I'm sure there were also some who knew that this had to be done. Maybe those who were mourning the plague, those who knew this man's character maybe, maybe those who who knew and saw what he had done, and, and those who were troubled by the bold and disgusting sin that had entangled this man. Regardless, be sure, Phineas did the right thing at that time. We know it because he was commended by God. When people stand up and speak the truth, even if it's uncomfortable and unpopular with some, we need to encourage them. We need to commend them. We need to do everything we can to support them, especially in the desperate times we're living in today. God commended righteous zeal for his will, and we should do the same. Folks, Phineas is a great example for us of the zeal that we should have for God, and there are plenty of lessons that we can learn from Phineas. Righteous zeal is a powerful thing. Righteous zeal consumed Jesus, and he's our example. We're to follow after him. So if you're a Christian, don't forget the lessons we learned today. God expects his people to obey him. God wants his people separated from sin. We need to zealously and courageously stand up for what's right. And righteous zeal should be commended, not looked down on. As we finish things up here this morning, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now the most important question that any of us could ever be asked. It's a question that each and every single one of us needs to be able to answer honestly. Here's the question. If the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, no doubts whatsoever, that you would go to live with him forever? Do you know for certain that he's going to let you into heaven? Can a person even know? Well, I've got good news. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle John writes that we can know. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's good news. I want to know that I have eternal life. Now, let's back up just a little bit, and I want to show you a reality that's in the scriptures that we need to deal with. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, scripture says there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So according to the Bible here, somebody's going to get in trouble when Jesus returns. Somebody's going to pay. Who did this passage of scripture say was going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Well, there are two groups listed, right? Number one, those who do not know God. And secondly, those who do not obey the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus. Now, maybe you know God. I hope you do. But let me ask you this. Have you obeyed the gospel? Before you answer that, let's make sure we know what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But what is it? What is the gospel? We know what it does. We know uh, the power that it holds. But what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, the Bible interprets itself here. The, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day. The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin, and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? I want to read Romans chapter 6, just verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Did you catch that? Did, did you find the three parts of the gospel there? When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead so that we too will walk in newness of life. Now folks, the Bible makes it clear you must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. According to several scriptures, for instance, Matthew 16, 16, John 1, 1, John 1, 14, John 8, 58, Colossians 2, 9, and Hebrews 1, 8. According to those passages, we learn that Jesus is the Christ, the one who would come to save us from our sins. We learn that he is the son of the living God. We learn that he himself is God, one of the three distinct personalities that make up God. And we learn that he is God the son who came to earth in human form. Folks, we must hear the gospel and believe it. We must trust Jesus completely. We must make a distinct turn away from sinful living and toward God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible calls this change in our behavior repentance. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we must obey the gospel through baptism. That's where we're immersed in water by the authority of God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is indeed where we are baptized into Christ's death, into his burial, and raised up to newness of life by the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from death. And Acts 2.38 and Acts 22.16 make it clear that at our baptism, our sins are forgiven, washed away. 1 Peter 3.21 literally says, baptism saves us. Galatians 3.26-27 teaches us that through faith and as a result of our baptism, we become children of God, clothed with Christ. So let me ask you again, if the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure with no doubts whatsoever that you would go to live with him forever. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions you have. We would appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, keep listening, and we'll tell you how you can get in touch with us in just a moment. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at Liberty Christian Church at one of our Sunday services. We meet at 1030 a.m. each and every Sunday morning at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, there are a few different ways that you can do that. Just call 812-273-1518. Or you can also reach out to us on Facebook, or you can send us a message directly from our website. Now, speaking of our website, if you'd like to hear this message again or to listen to other messages, just go to our website, www.liberty-christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. Jesus created his church as a body of people. His church is a family made up of sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have been called to meet together regularly. The pattern that we see from the church in the Bible is that they met every Sunday. So if you're able, come meet with us next Sunday right here at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth.